Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. We, we never had a, uh, an exit strategy or a escape plan or people would say, what were you guys going to do if you didn't make it? You know, after we loaded up the U-Haul truck, we committed to, we quit our jobs, we moved out to L.A. And, and the truth is we never had a plan. We just, we were so headstrong and so confident that, that we would make it. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I should tell you before I start, I've always stressed to you guys over and over again in the audience, there's very important things about our business. The most important thing is showing up early, okay? That's the biggest thing in the world. I talk about that all the time. Today, I completely screwed up. I emailed my guest today, who I am unbelievably excited about to interview David Zucker. I email his assistant, 1030. It's all set. We're going to make it work. Everything's fine. And then, of course, I look at my calendar and it says 130. I have a pitch meeting early in the morning. Same time, I realize as I'm driving, oh my God, I have completely screwed up. And I don't have uh, David Zucker's direct email or cell phone because I just, there's something about just wanting to really bother people. I like to do things in a certain way where I can sometimes work with people's, the people that they pay to actually do the job to do things and get them the information. And his assistant did a magnificent job, but you know, frantically emailing the guy as I'm driving down the PCH, swerving back and forth canceling another meeting to be with him because I know how important it is and I know how important it, w- it was for him to to honor this commitment for me and I appreciated it so much and here I am telling the assistant that I'm late but the assistant of course probably can't get in touch with David right away because it's so I rush up to the lobby he's there and I think he's going to be so angry at me and so mad and he is the calmest kindest person in the world and just really made me feel at ease in my moment 
of stress. And as Jay Moore once told me, don't spook the thoroughbred. And in this case, I'm not the thoroughbred. David Zucker is the thoroughbred, but he treated me like I was the thoroughbred. He treated me like everything was going to be okay. He treated me in a calm way. And I say this often in this podcast, and I never know what I'm going to say in my cold opens, but I think the thing I want to say is this. One of the most important things that you can have in your life and your business is calm. Nothing ever went wrong when you throw calm at it. Yes, there's things that would have happened negatively if you threw calm at it, but for the most part, that's not the case. It just won't normally happen. As David Zucker brings a rock from my desk that says calm on it, which I have on my desk as a paperweight, ran over and got that for me. So I just feel that way. Now, granted, if there's a fire in your apartment, I don't think calm is going to always work. You probably have to be calm and rush out as fast as you can. If there's a guy with a gun to your head and he's threatening to kill you, Yes, calm, but maybe as a backup, maybe not. But for the most part, calm wins. Calm always wins. And type AAA personalities and people who are short and curt and rude and to the point and whatever, it doesn't normally work. And I think back to something that I remember, I believe it was an interview that Leslie Nielsen did one time a great great actor who talked about all the movies that he'd been in and i believe he was asked which director would you prefer to work with the most of anybody and he said david zucker and i would imagine a lot of that had to be because he made leslie nielsen feel calm he made leslie nielsen feel safe in the choices he was making because he was working in a genre that is not an easy genre to do. And we're going to talk about this later about the kind of genre that David Zucker specializes in, but it's an amazing specialty that's very rarely seen and used. And you can count them on half a hand in the history of filmmaking where you actually take people who act out parts in a straight way and they become actually 10 times funnier than they would if they didn't. And the fact that Leslie Nielsen, one of the greatest actors of our generation felt that way about David Zucker and the way that he was to me this morning when I came into this lobby with all the things that weren't right, all the things that weren't the way that he handles things and he handled with calm. I can tell you right now that we're going to have an amazing podcast because if he had handled things in a way that most people handle things with a snide comment, a sarcastic bite at me, an attitude like go fuck yourself. I deserve to be treated better, but he didn't. He felt it inside and he held it down below and he showed me the comp. No, I'm kidding. He didn't do that. So my advice to you and the gist of this cold open would be, listen, everybody, if ever you want to send that text after somebody sends you that horrible text, stop yourself. Don't send it. Wait. 
wait until you're calm. Think about what you're sending. Send a text that you could send the Mother Teresa, your grandmother, and your mother on her worst day. Same thing. If somebody says something or does something that you feel slighted or whatever, take a step back. Think about it. Be calm and handle things that way. And I can guarantee you in every area of your life, it will improve. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Okay, let's talk a business thing for a second. Okay. All right, because I think this is important for our audience. So you get the money from the investor. What does the investor want for his $670,000? So the movie, let's just say, movie gets made. First $670,000 comes in. The investor gets that. Then what was the deal, do you remember, that you made with this investor for every dollar after that? And how was it split between you, your brother, Jim Abrams, and um, um, Landis and uh, Weiss. Weiss? Well, I don't remember what the split was exactly or what the deal was, but we... Uh, you know, the thing made its money back in the first... No, I know, but you weren't so expecting that. We weren't, so. Well, actually, we were... And we. we we always were very headstrong. Again, we always expected whatever we did to be a hit because we, we kept telling people, this is great. This script is going to be great. This is going to be wonderful. You got to do this. It's going to be a big hit. And we we did believe it. So we, okay, weren't, we so, were never surprised. But All right. So it's yeah. going. He finances you. You shoot the movie. And then you have a movie, but no one's bought it yet. How do you get it distributed? Well, th- this was it was financed by United Artists Theater Circuit. It was so in other words, distributed. So they already just put it in their yeah, theaters. In their theater. So when it opened, how yeah. many theaters did it open in? I you know I don't I don't know. I mean, now a I guess a typical release is like 18,000 theaters or something or or 1800. So it's an initial 1800 theaters I guess. I, I but they opened it in I don't know 600 theaters whatever and whatever. so it's an initial run yeah, it initial made run. it made an all profit I mean 7.1 million dollars and, and the head of United Artists Theater Circuit was this Egyptian guy named Salah Hassanin who was the scariest guy in the world <laughs> very intimidating and we were like nah so and and but that night the, the next morning on Saturday morning he calls us. And he was like the most charming, wonderful guy in the world. And from then on, he just, he loved us. And well, there's more to the story later because we, you know, we, we took the airplane script to him. Well, obviously, yeah. uh, why, why, but when he wanted to do airplane, but I would imagine so did a ton of other people after the Kentucky. Actually, he could have had airplane. He could have had the whole thing, but he said, uh, you know, I want uh, uh, this this airplane. The script is is funny, but I want to do do it within Kentucky Fried Movie too. So, airplane would be like a twenty minute. It would like be like fistful of yen. So, and we said no, and so you know we probably you know wandered 
for another year trying to get airplane made. Even after the success of the first movie, no one was buying airplane. No, I mean, this is what I've learned in the business, uh, among other things, is that they will only let you do what you've already proven that you can do. So it was it was quite a jump to get off the, you know, we were the successful uh, operators of a small theater on Pico. and But to go to the next level was, that was a big deal to get Kentucky to be the writers and producers of Kentucky Fried Movie. The next level, Airplane, was, well, we had to direct. What was the budget? Of uh, Airplane? Yeah. Three million. Got it. And so how do you get that off the ground? Well, that we took to every studio in town, and, and some studios loved the idea. Uh, we took it to uh, Mark Rosenberg at Warner. Loved the idea, loved us. And then he read the script, and he said, no, I, I, he didn't like the script. So it's just, you know, it goes back to that one question you asked, you know, how do you write it on the page to, you know, to reflect, you know, what you're spoofing, you know, and it all is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, some people thought it was good. Some people didn't. So, uh, but fortunately there was one guy who believed in this idea from the start and it was pure, that was pure luck on for us and it was uh, Michael Eisner at Paramount who heard about the script at a dinner party and uh, excused himself from the table in the middle of dinner and called Katzenberg and said uh, there's this airplane script uh, have these guys in my office on Monday and so we got the call and uh, and we were and, and we were at Paramount on Monday and I'll never forget that because we were impressed by the carpeting on the floor. <laughs> what was impressive? We were in a real studio because it was like this rich studio carpet. <laughs> but we'll never forget the carpet at Paramount. <laughs> so there wasn't we a lot Paramount. of places with carpeting back then. Uh, we just we never noticed. I think Warner's had more of a uh, a tight weave, and this was and, and the Paramount carpeting was carpeting was more lush. You didn't even mention the carpet here. Anyway. Yeah, this would be this would be more on the cheap side. Yeah. <laughs> this would be more of the Warner Brothers, yeah. This is the Shaw yeah, yeah, we would, Costco. Yeah, we would not have remarked about this, but yeah. Awesome. All right, so uh, you get it going. He buys the movie, and now you're off, and you're doing Airplane. Yeah, we're doing Airplane. They took us through rewrites. And we, you know, we did many more drafts at Paramount under the auspices of Katzenberg and some of their story people. And, you know, we were very frightened of the big bad studio ruining our precious script. And in fact, they improved it. So we were really grateful to Eisner and Katzenberg. I just can't say enough good about them. People always make fun of studio executives or, you know, say how you know, horrible they are or what Neanderthals they are. But in this case, we were very lucky to have landed at Paramount, which was an all-star team. There was Barry Diller was there, Frank Mancuso, Dawn Steele, uh, uh, Bruckheimer and Simpson were there. So many, so many great people. Tell me one note that Eisner or Katzenberg gave you oh, that improved us, airplane. Yeah, they, they gave us notes. Well, here, one of the big things is, you know, we were we were such purists. 
uh, that we wanted to shoot it uh, on a prop plane because of Zero Hour, the 1957 movie, and in black and white. And Eisner said, absolutely not. It will not, you cannot do this on a prop plane. So we went through every level at the studio and everybody said, no, Eisner won't have it. And so finally we had a meeting with the man himself. And we said, we are absolutely set about this, Michael. And and we we explained to him why it would be funnier to do it in black and white on a prop plane. And Eisner listened very politely. And we finished our explanation. And he said, well, you know, you guys have really done a great job of explaining this. I really hadn't realized, you know, just how passionate you were about this, these particular points. And you may well be right about it. And you may make this movie, you may actually make this movie in black and white and on a prop plane. And it it could be a big hit, but it won't be at this studio. And so there's this big silence. (laughs) And so, Eisner kind of rescued us and he said, but don't, don't give me your decision right away. Um, you guys think it over the weekend. This was on a Friday and, uh, let's meet again on Monday and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll discuss it. And so, uh, we met again Monday. Of course we totally caved (laughs) and he was right. He was absolutely right. So, you know, there, there's, I mean, it's just a good lesson on at least what the studio system was then now the studios i don't think they have people as talented as eisner and katzenberg running studios these days or it's it's people who make horrible bosses nine (laughs) you know whatever stuff they're coming out with now it's all sequels remakes big stars whatever tell me the last comedy movie you saw in a theater where you actually left the theater and you're like, much respect. Oh, amazing. Much better than much respect. It was Bad Grandpa. Bad Grandpa. It was hilarious. And so I was so grateful to this guy, Johnny Knoxville, for having done this. Because otherwise I would think, well, I'm just, you know, I'm old and I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get modern comedy anymore. I mean, you could easily think that because I don't like anything. I don't like any sitcoms. I I just, I mean, Larry David, I like, and, uh, so you like Curb, like Curb Your Enthusiasm. You like yeah, Louis. I like Louis C.K. But everything else, it's impossible for me to watch. But uh, although I acknowledge that they're good. Tell me a television show. show that's a comedy that's sort of like on the border. Like it's not Louis for you. It's not Curb, but you're like, Okay, I, well, I, it's, no, it's just, just everything the, else that I recognize. It's good. I mean, I so I nothing that nothing that's like on the line. Modern Family, for instance, it's it's a good show, but I cannot stand to watch it. But and I don't mean to you know denigrate it because it's just it's great. I wish I had thought of that, but it's just it doesn't make me laugh. Got it. So and, the el- and and my my son is watching uh, Friends right now. He's watching Friends, Friends, Friends. How old is he? He's fifteen. Got it. Uh, he watches South Park, which I think is funny. And of course, I've worked with Matt and Trey, and they're, they're of course, great, and they're really funny. 
but uh, the movies that I've gone to see that I I could just count, I can tell you what they are. Tell me. They're uh, Bad Grandpa and uh, Bridesmaids. Okay. I also remember. Judd Apatow. Yeah. I mean, but not everything Judd does is something that, you know, I respond to, but. You know that that was good. I just I thought it. it was good. What it are the other, what are the other three? There were nothing. There weren't anything. That's it. Bad that Grandpa was, and Bridesmaid. History, it was Bad Grandpa and well, the rest I haven't seen because I don't really go to movies that much. All right, tell me a comedy movie that you felt the same way about before you ever made a movie. Well, uh, the Woody Allen movies like uh, Play It Again, Sam, and. Uh, Take the money and run. Bananas. We we loved those, and I liked. I suppose you know, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein of the Mel Brooks movies. So airplane opens, it kicks ass. Now you guys have money in your pockets. People are calling you left and right. They want to do business with you. Paramount is trying to re up and do more movies with you, and then you start, I believe, with the idea of the Naked Gun movies, and. Tell me how it's possible that you have the vision and belief that you're going to take a professional athlete and make him an actor that's going to score in these movies. Oh, are you talking about the the OJ thing? Yes, I am. <laughs> Let's just this is pre anything happening. Pre anything because people well, didn't put athletes in movies. Yeah, people, that was the thing. I mean. And people put athletes in movies, and they obviously couldn't act. And OJ was in that category because he was in, I mean, he he was in movies, you know, as some, one role or another. And uh, even even Zero Hour had Crazy Legs Hirsch from, you know, running back for UW mm-hmm. in, in that, and he couldn't act. So we just thought that was kind of. <laughs> so you thought it was funny hiring was somebody couldn't act. Yeah, couldn't act. But yeah. I thought that you. And so we hired Kareem. Now Kareem, yeah. uh, respect Kareem wherever you are. I love you. You're a Hall of Famer, not an actor. Right. O.J. Simpson, you made into an actor. Well, yeah, O.J. got better and better. Uh, the first, the first, I think the first Naked Gun I remember was you know somewhat of a you know I had to squeeze it out of him a little bit, but. He was able to do it, but he he improved with each movie until he, you know, killed people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing I, about that, but well, this is what I think about yeah. at times. Like I think about Robert Kraft. Okay, he meets with Aaron Hernandez, the owner of the Patriots, and he meets with him. And he said, "Listen, um, did you do this?" And Aaron Hernandez says, "No, I didn't." Then he gets arrested. And then what happens, I wonder oftentimes, and I don't know why, maybe it's my sick mind, because it's never happened to me, where you have a friend or somebody who's an associate you've been with close with is accused of a horrific crime. Is it the psychology of you as a person uh, to just say, okay, I'm never talking to this person again? Or are you as a person innocent until proven guilty? And did you talk to him throughout the process until the verdict. Oh, no, I, I wasn't that close to him. I mean, I, I just, the last time I ever saw OJ was uh, at the Naked Gun 33 and a 3 rap party. I, I sold him my knife collection and I never, I never <laughs> saw him again. That was, that was it. No contact. So, <laughs> but, but, but it's like, I remember when I first heard about it, uh, 
I kind of felt sick when it was it was days after that when he was they started to think he was you know he could have been implicated but you work with him hundreds of days could you ever imagine or see any quality in him that could possibly be a person who could ever do that no you never think that that he would actually you know stab to death two human beings no you just because i'm sure you worked with people who you could think could stab people yeah, like Michael Madsen, <laughs> perfectly capable of stabbing people uh, on Bundy Drive. But, uh, of course, <laughs> Michael Madsen is a super guy, wonderful guy. He just has this great acting style that makes him look, you know, mean and bloodthirsty. How do you decide whether you guys direct a movie or somebody else directs a movie? Because some you didn't direct and some you did. And it seemed odd to me because I would think you always want to direct with your brother. Right. Well, uh, and Jim know, was directing with you guys. So well, the three we decided of you. to go our separate ways as far as directing after uh, Ruthless People. And so, you know, we wrote the first Naked Gun together. And uh, but I, I directed that on my own. Jerry did Ghost on his own and First Night and Rat Race. And Jim did uh, a movie called Big Business with Bette Midler and then the Hot Shots movies. But you guys, when somebody didn't direct, the other one produced, when somebody... Well, sometimes. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with Rat Race. So you didn't... So we weren't together. No, we kind of split up. Jerry and I kind of ran an office together, which we called Zucker Brothers for a while. But we did all independent projects. I mean, the the Naked Guns were pretty much me. And Jerry did uh, Ghost and First Night and produced My Best Friend's Wedding. Got it. Talk about basketball and your association with Matt and Trey from South Park and talk about how this isn't fictional. Right. Well, you know, I met Matt and Trey because a lot of these people come to town and and I mean, you know, there's really talented people and they stop off at, at our office, you know, through through one thing or another. And I, I, I that's how I got to know the the Farrelly brothers. And in fact, uh, we started, I I started playing uh, basketball, uh, just a a friend of mine and I were playing horse and then we started playing tip horse. We got bored with that and then we, we just evolved the rules to basketball to make it actually baseball rules and played that on my driveway and then. Other, other people, and then when we had two other guys come in, Expl- we played exp- two on two. Explain just just in the shortest time you can, because I don't want to waste your time. Well, you the sh- rules of basketball: yeah. you shoot from different areas of the court for a you know, like from the free throw line is a single, two steps back on a sidewalk is a double, on the slant leading to the street is a triple, and from the street is a home run, and you can bunt from is a very short side shot from the sideline and if you tip in a missed shot you with less than uh one out or less than two outs you can get get a double play so there you can erase the base runner so they're imaginary base runners and more and more people started coming into this thing <clears throat> until we had uh eight teams among whom were, you know, Richard Lovett and Doc O'Connor. Richard Lovett, who is the chairman of CAA, probably. Yeah, he was on it. Uh, the Farrelly brothers were in it. Um, just a, a, a whole a whole bunch of people. 
not Matt and Trey yet, but uh, they they played later. But uh, a lot of people were playing basketball on my driveway, and we would have we would have a you know we'd play three major tournaments with these eight teams, and then the top three teams would have a lock on the playoffs, and then the everybody else would play a round robin for the for the wild card spot, and then we'd close off the street and for and and have this uh, the you know the this what would be the the championship game and uh the 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 final year we closed we had the street closed off and we and uh two different uh t- local stations covered it among whom was Keith Oberman and so it was incredible it was just you know and we played the 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 highlights on video we had it edit up of the of the of the whole season because we would video every game, anyway. So we decided we, we should make a movie about this, <laughs> for better or for worse, and that that became basketball. And we you know we pitched it to Universal and they wanted to do it. And uh, and originally we were considering uh, Chris Farley being in it, and but Matt and Trey came in, and so we decided to. To use them. And he, they also came and they helped write it too. You alluded to something, so I'll just talk about it. Why do you think certain movies don't work? Even though there's hundreds of people working on it, including yourself, and you're every step of the way, and you believe in it or else you wouldn't spend that many hours on it, and then it goes out there in the world and people just don't come. What do you attribute that to? I I attribute it to the scripts. You know, the script, it's really tricky. And it comes down to plot and character. And if you don't absolutely nail that, that plot and character, you won't you won't have the people having a kind of a, a, a completed, satisfied feeling, you know, when they walk up the aisle. When, you know... Alex Karras once wrote a book, and he he was athlete now obscure, but I mean he was a the Detroit Lions Hall of Famer, and he wrote when the Lions would play the Packers, they would beat them the entire four quarters until they looked up at the scoreboard in the end and see that they lost, and <laughs> so that's that's that is what I would kind of liken uh, Top Secret to. And so it was just the greatest movie ever in terms of jokes, but it was unsatisfying as far as, you know, character and structure and plot. And so poor Val didn't really have a character. That's why it was so difficult to get along with, we think, during the production. Because I think he was just felt that he was kind of floating. And so, I mean, we blamed him for many years, but... It wasn't his fault. It was really, you know, the more we learned about, you know, what we did, the more it was, it was the fault of, you know, Top Secret. It was the script. But recently we've recut Top Secret and it's a lot better. It actually has an ending now. It needed a joke at the end. And we, because we, we played it at Sketchfest in San Francisco, the film festival, and got a huge reaction. And, it's just, but for a few scenes, it was it was great. It worked great. And the ending could have worked great. And so we fixed it. And so we went to Paramount and we recut it 
and uh, I don't think Paramount's going to re-release it. But actually, we're doing the same thing with Airplane now. We're, you know, this week we're recutting the second half of Airplane because only because these movies still play in front of live audiences and they're still they're still funny. So we've we've played Naked Gun. And and that's still funny. Airplane and Top Secret. Those are the and and we're going to uh, show. I think in the fall we're showing uh, Ruthless People. Awesome. So tell me about Scary Movie and your association with Keenan Ivory Wayans and how it all came together. Oh well, I I don't have any association with uh, Keenan except that we had lunch once and he's a lovely guy and you know he just always complimented me and said that they had. Uh, you know, really been influenced by Kentucky Fried Movie, and they did. You know, I'm going to get you, sucker, and and I I've, I've always been a fan of of their stuff, and they did the first two scary movies, and I think the the second scary movie was troubled because uh, and not as successful. Probably I I don't know the story because I'm not really in contact with those guys, but I think the studio you know, force them probably to do, you know, meet deadlines, uh, force them to do a script a certain way. And I, I don't, I don't know that it was their fault, but in any case, when they, when it came time to do scary three, uh, they, I think that they didn't negotiate with, with, uh, the studio instead opting to do a movie with Joe Roth at uh, revolution. And I think that angered the studio and so they called me. Uh, the studio did, and this is you know independent of the Wayans. They asked me to to do Scary Three, and at the time I was you know basically in director's jail ever since uh, Basketball, and I had done one movie for the Weinstein's for Bob Weinstein, which was an Ashton Kutcher movie. I think it's the only Ashton Kutcher movie to flop, and so and and but he said. But Weinstein wanted me to direct Scary Three, so I said, "Sure." You know, where's the script? And so, why did he give you the shot when you were in director jail and everybody else wasn't giving you the shot? Actually, you know, Bob Weinstein is a guy who. Well, first of all, he didn't blame the uh, the failure of the Ashton Kutcher movie on me, and and uh, he say he said you're he told me you're a better director than your material and so he never blamed me for it and he was just always always nice about that and he doesn't care about what you've done or uh your politics or anything else he just he's he's a guy that cares about the bottom line of you know can we make a good movie not a good movie can we make a successful movie and uh, so he called me and he didn't care that maybe he even liked basketball. I don't know. But uh, he he had he had confidence that I could do it. And I was, of course, willing to do it because I was I, I had just been through like I had gone. I was set to do a Rob Schneider movie and I was two weeks away from getting on a plane to go to New Zealand for that. And uh I wasn't all that excited about doing that, but that was canceled. So I was I was available, and uh, and and Weinstein called, and so and I got I was able to get uh, Proft again on the show, and then uh, Weiss to produce, and Craig Mazin to also write, 
And we had a great team. And so we did two really, really uh, successful movies with with Bob. And talk about getting the shot to do something when things weren't necessarily going well. And, and a lot of times it's like, it's hard enough to get that shot. But then to get a, a shot to produce something that's nowhere even near your lane, which is what happened with what I consider to be a really good movie, Phone Booth. Oh, yeah. So here you are, you're a comedy guy your whole life. How does anybody give you the keys to the kingdom or oh. get you involved with something that's a drama? Well, this was, see, after I was uh, had Zucker Brothers with my brother. Yeah. Then uh, our universal deal ended, and I went in with the head of our company, whose name is Gil Netter. Of course. And uh, you know Gil. Yes. And uh, Gil and I had a company called Zucker Netter, and Gil found a phone booth and walk in the clouds. And uh, we worked on that. We worked on, you know, draft after draft of phone booth. But you're not, but you've you, you, you never written the drama. Well, but but there's so many things. That I know hold, you say that dramas were the things that inspired right. your. Comp- no, it's just there's certain things about. I mean, I'm a fan of drama, and I, I think I could direct it if I wanted to. I could direct a drama if I could, you know, get myself to be serious for ten minutes. But like, you know, my favorite movies are not comedies, really. But it's like, it's The Godfather one and two. Those are my favorite movies. And, uh, and, and, and so I'm, whatever the movie is, it's, it comes down to character and, and structure and plot. And so I know enough about that to be able to do that. And we had a really good writer and Joel Schumacher was the director. Of course. Yeah. He directed his first film, I believe. Do you remember what this was? I hope I get this right. I don't know anything about film history. I'm remember the movie DC cab. Yeah, I remember. I never saw all those it. comedians in the. But so, what's it like as a director? How, tell our audience what's the difference between directing a comedy. I know you didn't direct Phone Booth, right? But is there some fundamental difference for directing a comedy than there is a drama, or is it all the well, same? I, to you? I I think I think you're directing a drama is much easier. I would think because you don't have to. It's in in uh, in comedy, you can't fool anyone. I mean, you can on TV because you have a laugh track, or or you have people just in their homes. But in uh, in theatrical comedy, you're you're out there. If it's not funny, it's really embarrassing because you have an audience there, and you can you can tell that no one's laughing. So it's just it's so technical. It really is, and just and the timing and the. Uh, you know the the camera angles. You, you just have to use everything. It's it's. I think it's a lot more complicated, and and to direct spoof is easier than being able to just turn the camera on Adam Sandler or you know Robin Williams or or, or Jim Carrey or any of these people who are just you know funny. They're just they just you can just. That's what we call a switch flipper. When you can just flip the camera on, and Jim Carrey does his stuff. I mean, there's not too much you need to do. But for the style of spoof comedy that we do, 
all, all the everything has to come from really behind the camera. It's just all it's all very technical and it's all serious actors. And you know the timing has to be right and the and the dialogue has to be right and it, it just has to be perfect. So it's just harder. Although I'm you know I'm saying this not having ever directed a drama, but and I'm not saying that Coppola's job was easy. <laughs> <laughs> the Godfather. No, but I hear you. All yeah. right, final roundup. I'm going to do a little word association. I'm going to mention a name of somebody and just tell me the first thing that comes to mind, anything. Weird Al Yankovic. Naked gun. And, and he's also a dad at the school that, that my kids go to. <laughs> so you found them at the school and cast them? We found, now, this was way before kids in school. But he... Um, he knew he was a friend of uh, a producer, Bob Weiss. So Bob Bob Weiss would say, "Can can you get? Do you have a uh, any any uh, bit for Weird Al to do?" And so we cooked up that thing in in Naked Gun, which is just a great joke, one of my favorite jokes. And so then we were sure to put him in every movie since then. And he's just such a nice, nice guy. He's just like there's no. There's no edge to weird. I mean, he's just, he's amazingly funny, but he's just nice. He's a nice boy. Anyways. Dennis Hopper. Oh God. Dennis Hopper. Do you want one word? You can say anything. <laughs> you can say a story. We can say So anything. I directed him in what American Carol. Dennis. It was American Carol. And well, well, two things. I, I, I told him that he had to, sit a certain way in with a gun in his hand with his back to the he played a judge and he said i why why are you why is why are you making me sit this way i should be up on the you know behind the judge's bench you know he was kind of an irascible fuck but and so i said okay yeah do that and he was right you know so so he's <laughs> Sometimes these people are right, you know, so, and then, and then he's doing, but, but one thing I do insist on is no pauses. And you could ask Michael Madsen, I've had famous battles with Michael Madsen uh, about, you know, do it again, but don't pause between the and and the the, you know, that's, and because of the comic time and has to, so I did a, a reading for him. This is how I want you to do it, Dennis. I just did it right there. You know, bad acting. Gave him a line said, reading. Uh, yeah, but he interpreted it as a line reading. And so, and he says, I haven't gotten a line reading since I did. You know, he mentioned some movie 20 years ago. I haven't gotten a line reading from a director. I said, it's not a, I'm not giving you a line reading, Dennis. I'm just, yeah, forget it. You know, like, <laughs> you know, what can you do? So I just, I didn't like him very much. And, uh, and then, but then when we came to say goodbye, he was all smiles and yeah, great, nice working with you, David. <laughs> Everybody, this is this is Hollywood. This is the movies. Everybody's Jenny Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy, wonderful, just nicest person ever, and uh, yeah, she she was just great. And and uh, what can I say? And then I think I directed her in two movies. There were two things that we did. I can't remember what they were. One was basketball. Priscilla Presley. Oh, the sweetest person ever. And you just, and what a surprise that she's just so sweet. You know, she's just, 
when you think of what Priscilla Presley must be through, well, she must have an edge and be hip and all this stuff, but she's really like someone that would have lived next door to me in Milwaukee. Charlie Sheen. Charlie, what It was like driving a Lamborghini. Directing Charlie was such a pleasure. And believe me, I'd want to say something bad about him, but I can't. There, there is nothing bad, except that he smoked on the soundstage. And if... If I ever did a whole movie with him, I say, Charlie, you gotta, you know, use a vapor cigarette or something. But it, it really made me sick. All that cigarette smoke. But he's so good. He's, he's just. There's he and Leslie Nielsen are the best. Kelsey Grammer, also great guy. And uh, I think I just did American Carol with him. I, I don't think. And we always wanted to do another movie together. And he's also become a personal friend. So. That was one of the few I actually hung out with. The Farrelly brothers. Oh, the Farrelly's I met way back in 1984 when I knew uh, their writing partner's sister, and she gave me their script, and I kind of eye-rolled and said, I'll read it, and it turned out to be Dumb and Dumber. And I thought, this is great. And this was years before. So finally he gets it going, and... Pete has never directed, and he's he's been on the on the basketball team. And I didn't even realize this is Pete Pete Farrelly on my driveway. He was just this kid who was a he was a funny guy and a funny writer, and uh, so um, he he he. I remember he wanted to. He had never been on a movie set before, like like us before Kentucky Fried Movie. He just wanted to know what it was like. So um, he was on the set with us on for a week on uh, scary uh, no on the na- last naked gun and so, uh, finally bet midler bet midler very nice she was just so talented and uh, cuz you is. know i don't believe you worked with that many people who were a star as a musical artist yeah but she's then- also an amazing comedian actress and she actually hated herself in um, Ruthless People. For some reason, she didn't like it or didn't. It was embarrassed about something. I, but years later, we met again. At There was a day at Disneyland when everybody brought their kids. And she said, you know, I wanted to tell you this is Ruthless People is my the, the best movie I ever made. So that was nice to hear from her. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me your greatest disappointment in show business and how you turned it into something positive. Well, the first greatest disappointment was Top Secret when that was released. And the second greatest disappointment was Basketball. Just shocked because I thought those movies were so great. And then it just, you know, just flopped. And and uh, and how I how you resolve it, I mean, you just... You know, it's like getting out of prison. You just have to dig your tunnel and just escape somehow. And it's very difficult. It's it's as hard as starting into the movie business in the first place is overcoming a flop. Is it a psychological thing where you go out into public and you start taking meetings and you know the elephant in the room is there? And- yeah, that big flop, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I took a lot of meetings, you know, and then, you know, tried to get things going, producing, you know, Gil 
Netter was a big help. Like Gil would cook up these ideas, and like he cooked up an idea we're going to do uh, Smoking the Bandit, a remake with all black people. And so we go into a meeting at Warner Brothers, and you know, I, years later, I went to Warner Brothers, and one of the young executives said, "You know, I was at that meeting when you pitched us Smoking the Bandits because of what I said." Uh, because halfway through the meeting, because I was just, I wanted to produce it. It wasn't something I was you know, passionate about. And Gil, Gil is always the salesman. So he said, and David is going to direct it. And so we're there with the Wu-Tang Clan <laughs> and all their bodyguards because they were going to be in it. And pretty intimidating. And so I, everybody, like I was like a deer in the headlights. And I said... <laughs> Everybody turns to me like, Dave, you're going to direct this? I said, well, I've never directed a Negro movie before. And so and there was this, there was this sucking sound, you know, where everybody said, what, did he really say this? And so that, but everybody cracked up. And so, and people, people still come up to me and ask me about that and about the horse that we had. We, you know, a friend of mine from New York, we, we uh, put a, a mare in full so we can name the horse. And we named the horse all pink that ran the horse at Belmont just so the and we told the jockey don't bother winning the race just you know, we 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 named the horse all pink and so he said don't bother winning the race just run her on the rails so we get the call and it's all pink on the inside and, so, <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and this was the first of three horses there was all pink then AWL pink and old pink and we finally got the call on the third horse it was like it took eight years and about you know Thirty thousand dollars to do this joke. <laughs> Anyways, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> what's your What's your proudest moment in show business? You know, my proudest moment had to be. You know, we we did air. We we finished airplane, and you know we. You know, the first preview was a disaster. We, you know, Katzenberg gave us a pep talk and we recut the movie. We played it at um, at uh, UC Davis and it was, uh, it worked. Because the second half was a flop when we, we showed it for all the executives at Paramount. What was wrong with the second half? It was just slow. It was too slow and it just... And I, I played the the next morning. I played the audience reaction back uh, on tape, and I realized that everything got a laugh. They was just too far apart, and this kind of comedy depends on on pace. And so that was like one of the happiest moments when that worked. But it was true that every first preview was a disaster, including all the Naked Guns, including just every movie. The first preview. And especially uh, Scary Movie 3, which was one of the best movies I ever did, was a complete disaster, the first preview. And we went back and sh we reshot for two weeks. Well, one of the things I, I want to say before I get to the last question is a, a word of advice that I always give every young filmmaker. And I don't know why more people don't do it. And... It, one of the most amazing things you can find, if you're on a Skype with somebody and you want to show them your short film or something like that, you say, go to YouTube and type it in and play it. I'll just wait here while you watch the three minutes or whatever. 
and they're blowing it up on their computer screen to watch your short film. But what they don't realize is that you can see their reaction just right here, looking into the camera, watching the film, and you can see how they react to it. And my advice for every young filmmaker out there, if you're doing a short film, and invite some people over your house who you don't even know. Some you know, but invite people you don't know, or friends of friends of friends. And put a video camera on top of the flat screen TV and press play when you press play for the movie. And then play back the movie and their reaction side by side. And you will know immediately if you have enough laughs per minute to have a movie that's going to sustain and make an extraordinary impact on people. And you knew enough to... Oh, yeah. We, we always did that. We recorded the audience reaction in audio. And in later years, we actually had a camera... In, on the audience so we could see if, if they even smiled at something. <laughs> Sometimes we needed to keep that stuff in. <laughs> you're, you're running out of material. Awesome. Last question. What advice do you give for the young person uh, somewhere in the world in whatever profession they're in? In your case, in Wisconsin, uh, growing up there and just doing your own little things and creating your own little theater in the back of a bookstore, going nowhere, fast, but something's happening. What advice do you have for a person your side of the business to become the producer, the director, the writer that you become to get from that point to the highest levels that oh, you've yeah. gotten to? Uh, sure. Uh, and, and also, yeah. I just want us to do a second question for an artist, too, because you've cast so many different artists. What does it take to be a great artist, to start from, you know, somebody, because you've given a lot of people shots who never did anything, and some of them performed in your movies and became big stars and others didn't, and what would your advice be for the person in front of the camera as well as behind it? Quit now, you'll never make it. <laughs> That's seriously, quit now, you're never going to make it. And, and the reason why I say this is that, I mean... <laughs> Here, the other half of this advice is if you can ignore this advice, you're halfway there. <laughs> so, I mean, and the reason I say it is I don't want to be responsible for encouraging anyone. It's just it's because it's impossible. And it's like we 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 never had a uh, an exit strategy or a escape plan or people would say, what were you guys going to do if you didn't make it? You know, after we loaded up the U-Haul truck, we committed to, we quit our jobs, we moved out to L.A., and, and the truth is we never had a plan. We just, we were so headstrong and so confident that, that we would make it. And when I hear people say, well, I'll give it a couple of years and, you know, or for directing, acting, whatever's writing, and see if I make it, I don't think those people are really going to make it because you just... You have to, you know, you really have to commit to it. If you're around, you you just have to hang around and love it. You have to love waiting on tables if that's what it takes for, for 40 years. Look at, what do you think um, Carol O'Connor did for, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years until he got all in the family? He just, he got bit parts. And then late in life, he just hit it big. He just, you know, there was the role that came in that was right for him. And often it's it's not a, a measure of if you're good or bad, but if you're just right for it. I mean, John Hamm is brilliant as Don Draper, but 
I mean, he was maybe 10% lucky that a show like that showed up for him. Uh, other people make their own luck. I think uh, Sylvester Stallone w wrote Rocky. And, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, very talented, uh, you know, has really made his own breaks. Uh, you have to... Now it exists the the possibility for you to make your own video. That it's much easier than it was when I started out, because the you know the stuff was really expensive. Now you can do stuff as you said on your cell phone. Um, but but you have to. I think more than anything, it's persistence. And I I wouldn't I wouldn't advise anybody to to keep on trying just because it's so impossible. It's, and you, but you have to love doing it. And I, you just have to be headstrong, I think, and just, and do, and not accept no for an answer. And, but my advice still is quit. You'll never make it. That's because I don't want to be responsible for encouraging anyone. Is that clear, Barry? David Zucker, <laughs> you are crystal clear. This has been amazing, and believe it or not, this podcast will encourage many, many people to get into this business, but also... <laughs> but not because of me. I, I didn't... Uh, no, no, me, no. They'll, they'll, me, yeah, it's, it's a, give an assumed name. They'll blame it on me. All right. Okay. Good. They'll blame it on me. All right. No, it was wonderful. I'm so, so, so grateful to you. Thank you so okay, much. This was fun, Barry. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years. He was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. 
and they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels you pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.